0: Another year, another thousand exoplanets. With Emma Alexander, George Bendo, Claire Brotherton, Josh Hayes, Ian Morrison, Tom Scragg, and Joel Williams. The JOGCAST, January 2018. Hello and welcome to a JOTCAST. I'm George, and joining me in the studio are Emma and Joel. Hello. Hiya. Hello. And Emma's been with us for a few episodes already, but Joel's new to this, so Joel, uh, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing.
1: Yes. Hello, I'm Joel Williams, and I've just started as a PhD student, and I'm studying theoretical cosmology, and I'm looking at how photons travel through the universe.
0: Okay. Well, that sounds fairly interesting. Uh, Good luck with uh, your studies over the next three years. So, on to the show... For our interview this time, we're going to feature Tom Scrag and Josh Hayes interviewing Dr. Alison Kirkpatrick about separating star formation and AGN activity in galaxies. After that, we're going to have Ian Morrison and Claire Brotherton talking about what's happening in the January night sky.
2: But first, before all that, here's Josh with this month's news.
3: Hello, I'm Josh Hayes and I'd like to wish all of our listeners a very happy new year. In the first Astronomy News Roundup of this year, we pay tribute to a great pioneer of spaceflight, we discuss a solar system to rival our own, and gravity-driven winds on Jupiter. That may have been one small step for Neil, but it's a heck of a leap for me. These are the words of Bruce McCandless, the first human to make an untethered spaceflight who died on the 21st of December at the age of 80. McCandless was immortalised in what could be one of the most stunning photos ever taken, when in 1984 he used a jetpack to fly, untethered, 100 metres away from the Space Shuttle Challenger. There were actually two manned manoeuvring units, or MMUs as they were known, on board the Challenger, and with the help of his crewmate Robert Stewart, McCandless was the first to fly in both of them. He described the experience, I was grossly overtrained, I was just anxious to get out there and fly i have been told of the quiet vacuum you experience in space, but with three radio links saying how's your oxygen holding out, stay away from the engines, and when's my turn, it wasn't that peaceful. It was a wonderful feeling, a mix of personal elation and professional pride. It had taken many years to get to that point. In the images of him during these flights, McCandless has his visor down so that he cannot be seen. Whilst this is due to him facing the sun, in an interview with The Guardian in 2015, McCandless noted about the photo, It's also one of its main attractions. My anonymity means people can imagine themselves doing the same thing. Like Neil Armstrong said in 1969, I was representing mankind up there. McCandless was more than just a guy in a jetpack, though. He actually helped design the MMUs, was part of the space shuttle crew which delivered the Hubble Space Telescope to orbit, and was the mission control capsule communicator at Houston for the Apollo 11 mission, speaking to Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin as they took their first steps on the moon. His voice is the one that you can hear as mission control. All of us at the JODcast would like to pay our respects to one of the great pioneers of spaceflight and pass on our condolences to his family. A solar system to rival our own. Until the 14th of December, The star Kepler-90 was known to host seven planets, putting it just one planet off matching our own Sun. An AI built by Google discovered the faint signals of a transit by an eighth planet, placing Kepler-90 equal to the Sun in terms of the number of known planets that it hosts. The AI was able to find a periodic dip in flux from the star, which had been missed by human researchers and existing algorithms. This is an incredibly exciting leap forward in the use of machine learning techniques, and identification algorithms in the field of astronomy. Kepler-90 is slightly larger than the Sun, coming in at 1.2 times its mass and radius, and six of its planets are so-called super-Earths, thought to be terrestrial or mini-Neptunes, which straddle the line between terrestrial and ice giants. The other two planets are gas giants around the size of Jupiter. There are several interesting things about this system. The planets are arranged similarly to our solar system, with terrestrial planets closer to their host than the gas giants. This is currently the only other system where we've seen this on a large scale, though this is possibly due to selection biases with our detection methods, where we are more likely to see so-called hot Jupiters as they produce a larger transit signal. However, whilst Kepler-90s planets are arranged similarly to our own, they are much more closely packed. The entire system of eight planets can fit inside the orbit of Earth, leading to them having particularly high temperatures. The discovery of this system is good news for planetary scientists, as it will allow us to further probe how large multi-planet systems form and evolve. And finally, my mother always used to tell me not to pull faces in case the wind changed and I got stuck. On Jupiter, changing winds have been an even bigger problem, as until now we've had no explanation as to why Jupiter's jet stream changes direction around every four Earth years. Researchers using NASA's Infrared Telescope Facility, or the IRTF, in Hawaii may have worked out the mechanism behind the mystery, gravity waves. Gravity waves are waves in a fluid which are generated by the gravity of a planet, for example, the waves the wind causes in our oceans. They should not be confused with gravitational waves, which we've discussed many a time on the Jodcast, which are waves in space-time and are generated by the motion of massive bodies. The team have proposed that gravity waves are set up by convection low in the atmosphere of Jupiter, and these waves then rise up into the stratosphere. These waves then lead to the jet stream over the equator changing direction, an effect which is known as quasi quadrennial oscillation, or QQO for short. The measurements required to understand this process were made using the Texas cross echelle spectrograph mounted on the IRTF. This instrument allows for measurements of the motion of thin vertical strips of Jupiter's atmosphere through Doppler shifting of spectral lines, and these measurements have led to the current theory. Jupiter is not unique in exhibiting this phenomenon. Earth's jet streams change direction about every 28 months, and Saturn's change around every 15 Earth years. Understanding how this process can occur, and the effects which it produces means that we can explore how atmospheres in a variety of planets behave, evolve and contribute to the features of that planet.
2: Thanks for that, Josh. Now, Tom Scrag and Josh interview Dr Alison Kirkpatrick about separating star formation and AGN activity in galaxies.
3: Hello, I'm Josh.
4: Hello, and I'm Tom Scrack, and we're both here today with Dr. Alison Kirkpatrick from Yale University. So, welcome.
5: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
4: You're here to give a talk at the uh, Starforming Regions Conference. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you were talking about and how you think it went?
5: So, my work centers around uh, finding black holes in galaxies. So, every galaxy has a supermassive black hole at the center of it. And these black holes have to build up their mass in the same way that a galaxy has to build up its stellar mass. And it turns out that the universe is pretty boring now. It was much more exciting 10 billion years ago and in an area that we call cosmic noon. So we have cosmic dawn that was about a billion years after the Big Bang is when we start to look for the first galaxies and then galaxies are building up their gas and their stars. And then right around 10 billion to 7 billion years ago, we have cosmic noon so that that is the area where I look at. That's where 50% of the stars that we see today were formed at cosmic noon, and now the universe is in decline, and we're maybe, I don't know, cosmic afternoon. Um, so, <laughs> okay. But these galaxies were building up their stars and their black holes at the same time. We can't resolve it. We just can see the global emission, so the integrated emission from the whole galaxy, and I particularly look at dusty galaxies where this dust is hiding all of these stars and these black holes, and so my job is kind of to play Sherlock Holmes and to try and disentangle the dust emission and to figure out how much of it is hiding stars and how much of it is hiding a central supermassive black
4: hole. Okay, let's come back to that. Okay. Quick question. How do you tell the difference between a dusty and a non-dusty galaxy then, if they're faint and far away? Yeah,
5: that's a great question. So astronomers really like to look in the optical, and that would be the images that people are familiar with, the beautiful images from the Hubble Space Telescope. They're optical images of galaxies. When you have a lot of dust, you won't see anything in the optical, but what you will see is a lot of emission in the infrared. And infrared is the light of heat. It is light that you and I are giving off if we were to look at an infrared telescope. It's the reason that your car gets hot because all of this UV and optical light comes in. It gets absorbed by material and re-radiated in the infrared. So dust acts the exact same way in a galaxy. It absorbs all this optical light and re-radiates it. So the things that I look at are very, very bright in the infrared. They're very easy to see. We can see them from ground-based telescopes.
4: Okay, so it's a selection based on dim visibly, but bright in infrared. Yes, exactly. Okay, all right, so to go back to one of the other things you said, how do you then tell the difference between the stars and the black hole in that galaxy?
5: That takes a lot of finesse. So stars will give off these key features called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, what we call PAHs, we have them on earth you can actually find them if you smoke a cigarette you will be exhaling pahs in the cigarette smoke but when we look at them in galaxies they represent young the stars and so we see these key spiky features from these very delicate molecules and we know that those arise in areas that are forming stars now we think that what happens to those molecules if there's a black hole is that it's possible that the emission from a black hole is strong enough that it destroys them but There's also dust, there's a dust torus surrounding a black hole. So let me back up and tell you the structure. So you have your central supermassive black hole that's a million times the mass of the sun. Then you have a disk of gas that is accreting onto this black hole. As this disk speeds up, as the gas in the disk speeds up, you get optical and x-ray light from it. Then beyond that disk of gas, then you have a torus of dust, and a torus is like a donut shape. And this dust absorbs that UV and optical light from the accretion disk. And it will get very hot and it radiates a very boring spectrum. We call it a power law spectrum. So it's basically just a line of radiation going from 1 microns to 10 microns. And so that's the key signature that lets you know that you have a black hole rather than stars. Because with dust that's hiding stars, you'll see these PAH features. You'll see some absorption from silicate dust as well. And then you'll also see... Right around five microns, uh, you'll see basically just a dip in a spectrum, which is due to not there's not a lot of dust radiating emission there. But all of that is just completely obscured by a black hole. Right,
4: so the black hole absorbs this signal. So
2: it
5: outshines it. So it's so so. so This is the tricky part. Right. So here in the in what we call the local universe, you can resolve your galaxy and you can look at a disk and then you can also look at the center and you can point your telescope at different points in the galaxy. 10 billion years ago, you can't do that. The resolution of the telescope is just not good enough unless you're talking about something like ALMA. So we have a couple of telescopes that can resolve these galaxies. But for the most part, our infrared telescopes can't. And so all you see is the emission from the entire galaxy grouped together into one spectrum, so if you have a very luminous black hole at the center, we call it an active galactic nuclei, then that light will be so bright that it will outshine the disk of the galaxy where the stars are forming. And so you won't see that.
3: So how does your black hole actually shine? Like the, the,
4: It's the accretion the... disk. It's okay. not the hole
5: itself, right? It is the material outside the black hole that is falling onto it. It is just moving so fast that it gives off a lot of light.
4: A slightly side question. Okay. One of the big discussions in astronomy at the moment is dark matter. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons for postulating dark matter is galaxies spin very fast. Yeah. Too fast yeah, for their apparent mass. Yeah. Could black holes be the missing mass?
5: That is a good question. Probably not. And the reason has to do with galaxy size. and We don't really... Appreciate how big a galaxy is. So, our sun is what we're about eight kiloparsecs from the center of our galaxy. So, that's 8,000 parsecs. A parsec is four light years. So, we're about 32,000 light years. So, it would take light. 32,000 years to travel to the center of our galaxy. So even though you have something at the center of our galaxy that is a million times the mass of our sun, it's really only affecting the stars right around it. It's not responsible for the fast spin of something like our sun way out 32,000 light years away. So that's why we think that we have dark matter all the way out here is that the black holes? just, if it was just the black hole, we would be moving slower than we are.
4: Right. So although they're super massive, they're not really that Especially right. On the scale of the galaxy. That's
3: right. Yeah, okay. Where does all the mass of these supermassive black holes come from? So you've said it's, what, 100 million yeah. times the mass of the Sun. Are there theories as to how something this heavy has come about?
5: That is a good question. So that gets into a, a realm called seed black holes, so S E E D, and that is controversial. This is something that people are hoping to look at redshifts of 6 to 10, which would be 12 to 13 billion years ago. It's only a couple billion years after the Big Bang. So we don't know. It could either be direct collapse of very, very massive stars, like somehow the universe was able to form very, very massive stars in its early day. And those direct collapse and those form seed black holes. And seed black holes are only like a few thousand masses and then these seed black holes all collide and build up and you get a million solar mass black hole all the way up to 100 million solar masses. This is something that we are hoping to be able to study with the James Webb Space Telescope which will be launching in October 2018 and we're hoping to constrain theories of black hole formation because right now it's an open problem.
4: And then James Webb is an
5: infrared telescope? That's right. It's going to be NASA's next flagship mission, the successor to Hubble. So it will look at wavelengths of about 0.1 microns out to 28 microns. And it's going to have a spectrograph, which is a way to take light and split it up into all the different wave bands. And then it's going to have What we call photometers, which is what you can think of as your standard camera. It just takes an image. And the resolution of James Webb is going to be great. We're going to hopefully produce Hubble quality images, but in the infrared. So we'll be looking at the dust.
4: Wow, that sounds exciting. Mm.
3: So the James Webb telescope won't be able to produce the optical images that we see with Hubble? That's correct. So are they leaving Hubble up?
5: Yes, Hubble is staying up. We're hoping to have a few years where Hubble will overlap James Webb, but if Hubble breaks, it breaks. So fingers crossed. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so you mentioned active galactic nuclei yes. earlier. Presumably what you mean is the the black hole at the center is actually interacting directly with its environment. Yes. So that's we get correct. a lot of radiation and right. we can detect it. Yes. Is Why are not every supermassive black hole active AGNs?
5: No, so our Milky Way is not. Our Milky Way, we have a dormant black hole in the center. We think it was more active in the past. There's actually people who look for relic emission. And in fact, I think we've seen recently bubbles of gas around the black hole that could have been produced during its active phase. But we think that, well, so every black hole must go through an active phase because it must accrete more of its material. It doesn't start out at 1 to 100 million solar masses. So it has to accrete the material. But the scales on which it happens is different than star formation. Star formation lasts in a galaxy for at least 200 million years, maybe a billion years maybe a couple billion years, maybe 10 billion years. Star formation can go on for a very long time, depending on your fuel and the size of your galaxy. Aging activity is not something that we understand very well. We think that it happens on the timescales of maybe 10,000 years, but then... The black hole kind of goes to sleep for a little while and then it wakes back up. They call that flickering. And so there are people like me who look for correlations between the active galactic nuclei and the amount of stars that a galaxy is forming to kind of understand how those processes interplay and regulate each other. Uh, it gets very hard because they happen on very different timescales. And so you may look at a galaxy and not think that it has an AGN, but it had one, you know, just a few years ago, you're just not seeing it. And you'll see it again if you could live another 10,000 years. And so then you've missed this whole picture of galaxy evolution. This is one of the reasons why AGN feedback is still very much an open question of how the growing black hole affects its host galaxy. It's very much an open question.
3: In discussions I've had with people who've mm-hmm. been at this conference, we've talked about the idea of AGN feedback blowing out the dust right. and gas from mm-hmm. within the galaxy. So is there a way to look at the amount of gas and dust that is within a galaxy and infer how long an AGN has been active for, even if it's not currently active?
5: Yeah, so this gets at a really interesting problem. So one of the things that we look at is something called star formation efficiency. So it is the rate that a galaxy is forming stars divided by the mass of gas that it has available to form stars. So if you're forming a lot of stars with a very little gas mass, you would have a high star formation efficiency. Or if you have a very low star formation rate, but a lot of gas, you'd still have a low star formation efficiency. And the idea is that things go through periods of high star formation efficiency that consumes all of their gas. So then they must immediately become quenched. And so quenched is like our word for dead galaxy. It's not forming stars anymore. And so astronomers have been trying to look for a correlation between your star formation efficiency and the amount of AGN activity that you have. Because the idea is if you have a low star formation efficiency, it could be because your AGN is consuming the gas rather than your star formation. The problem is that number one, such a correlation hasn't really been found universally. It depends on what wavelength you're looking at your AGN in as to how luminous it is. It depends on how you're selecting your sample. The other problem is, is that it could be that your black hole is consuming all of this gas in the galaxy. But again, you have to remember the scales of a galaxy. Your stars could be forming 32,000 light years away from your black hole. So then you have to give all that gas the travel time to get into the black hole. So it's not obvious that you would see a correlation at all anyway. The other problem is that a black hole needs gas to grow and stars need gas to grow. And so if your star formation rate is dropping because the gas is being consumed, it's not necessarily the black hole that's doing it. Maybe the whole gas supply of the galaxy is just being shut off. It's all of this gas that fuels the stars and this black hole is coming in from basically outside the galaxy. It is falling onto the galaxy. So that could just be being used up. And then it's not necessarily AGN blowing out the gas that is quenching the star formation. But this is something that we will be able to look at better with the Alma telescope that's in Chile, because what you want to do is to basically be able to look at your galaxy on a resolved scale you want to look at how much gas is being eaten up in the center versus how much gas is available in the disks and then that can really start to tell you something about whether or not the black hole is responsible for depleting the gas in the galaxy
4: okay so you need very high resolution images yeah, yeah. to do that yes okay so how did you get into this field what first excited you by Okay.
5: Um, in AGN. Um, so this is a bit of a funny story. So I didn't want to do galaxies at all. I thought galaxies were boring. I wanted to do planets, of course, the exoplanets. So I got my PhD at the University of Massachusetts, and when I applied, they had a very, very outdated website that said that they did exoplanets. And so I applied, <laughs> 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 and I got in, and that was like... Based on visiting, it, w- it was just a really great department, so I decided to go there and then start to ask around about projects and found out they do not, in fact, do exoplanets. They had just listed it on their website. So then I was like, okay, well, w- well what am I going to do? And I wanted to start in the summer to get a jump on the research before our classes started. And one person had funding, and she was a new faculty, and that her name's Alex Pope. And so she gave me my first project, and it happened to be separating... AGN from star-forming galaxies, trying to do it using something that we call color selection, so looking at the color of the galaxy, and I really liked it, and I stuck with it. And in the U.S., the PhD programs are a little bit different, they take longer, Mm -hmm. and so I had the chance to work on a couple of different projects, so I came back, did some stuff in the local universe, measuring the temperature and dust mass in local galaxies, but I preferred the higher redshift AGN, so I went back to that.
4: Mm, Interesting. So a mistake. Yeah, it was a mistake. (laughs) Do you get to travel to the observatories much? Yeah. If at all. Uh Uh-huh, I do, I do.
5: So a lot of my work is with the space observatories. can't travel there. Shooks. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But I have also used Gemini on Mauna Kea, and when I used it, you you got to go to the top of Mauna Kea. They don't do that anymore. It's remote observing down at the base of the mountain, which I think is a real shame. And I've also been observing with Keck, Keck also. You do not go to the summit of Mauna Kea, but you can go to Waimea in Hawaii and do your observing there. And then I've been to the Large Millimeter Telescope, which is a collaboration between the University of Massachusetts and Mexico. And that is down in Puebla, Mexico. And I've been there. That one's at like 15,500 feet.
4: (laughs) You get to the observatories, you don't necessarily get to the top. These observatories are at altitude. Mm -hmm. So why are you putting the telescope so high up?
5: As you're looking through less of the atmosphere. And that's ultimately why you want to go to space, because you have no atmosphere to look through. So Keck and Gemini have used it to look into the near infrared. And the problem with the near infrared is that you have a lot of atmospheric transmission lines. For example, like water, just molecules that are in our atmosphere that would absorb all of this light coming in. So the higher up you go, the less of the atmosphere that you have to deal with. And then we also have something called the atmospheric seeing. And this is why stars twinkle. So if you ever go outside at night and you see a star twinkling, and you can tell some nights stars twinkle more, if you're able to see them more, then you can turn to your friend and say that the atmospheric seeing is worse tonight. (laughs) Because the atmospheric seeing, it's kind of like being at the bottom of a pool and looking up, and you're seeing the light go through all the water and get refracted, and our atmosphere does the same thing. So the less that we have to deal with, the better.
4: Thanks very much, Alison. Thanks for your time, and thanks for coming in to see
5: us. Okay, thank you.
2: for that tom and josh now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that we can't fit in anywhere else the odds and ends
1: so for my odd and end i'm going to talk about how w map was awarded the breakthrough prize for fundamental physics this is a prize that's awarded by the fundamental physics foundation which was founded in july 2012 by a russian physicist called yuri milner The prize awards $3 million for outstanding or breakthrough work in fundamental physics, as the name would suggest. So this prize was awarded to the WMAP team. Now WMAP was the second full sky survey of the cosmic microwave background. The first was COBE, and COBE discovered that there were in fact anisotropies in the cosmic microwave background. That it wasn't just a homogeneous, smooth surface. What WMAP did was measure these anisotropies with an extreme amount of accuracy and from WMAP and then WMAP led on to Planck which measured these anisotropies with even more accuracy. Now why this is important is because there are many theoretical models that predict how the universe evolved, whether inflation happened, how the early universe was structured and actually this full sky map helped to rule out a number of potential theories as to how the universe evolved and further confirmed certain models like the Lambda CDM model.
2: What is the Lambda CDM model for anyone out there that's not a cosmologist?
0: Or even for those people who are astronomers but not really deep into cosmology in the first place, although I doubt there are that many astronomers who haven't heard of Lambda CDM yet.
1: The Lambda CDM model just refers to what makes up, what we think makes up the universe? It's uh, it's sort of a model that that states the universe is made up of uh, cold dark matter, which is the CDM part, and lambda, which is a cosmological constant. So these it's it's a model that predicts that these are the dominant features in the evolution of the universe. This lambda CDM model predicts how the universe should evolve. Um, it predicts that well, two thirds to seventy percent of the universe is made up of dark energy, or a cosmological constant. And it predicts that roughly the other third is cold dark matter and what's left over is the regular matter we see or the baryonic matter we see and we're used to. So actually it predicts that quite a large chunk of what the universe is made up of is in fact stuff we don't actually see.
2: I just love how we've gone from in, in well in a relatively small time frame in the grand scheme of science from wondering if pigeons are the cause of a strange signal um observed um to then knowing where that signal is and that signal is the the cosmic microwave background and then finding all of these cosmological theories from it it's uh i think it's really cool
1: it's quite strange it just it just goes to show you should really do check that you're uh when you're removing noise from your experiments, then what you're actually removing is in fact useless noise and not something much more important or useful. Or,
0: I think there's been like uh, quite a few things over the uh, course of uh, science history. Uh, I think measuring the gravitational constant uh, g might be one of them where it's been particularly challenging to do because you can have so many different um, sources of background noise uh, in your measurements uh, that would affect the uh, derived uh, constant or would add noise to your measurements. Uh, you can actually, uh, can't actually improve the measurements that much better than you actually can. I think the um, gravitational wave experiments uh, may be in a similar situation mm-hmm. as well, although they've actually, uh, as we've seen in the past year, they've actually been able to do some really impressive stuff. They seem to have conquered their background noise issues at the very least.
1: Mm. There's definitely cases where you, you even need to understand some extra physics about, about your system that you, you didn't know before in order to even just remove the noise. For, for the case of cosmic microwave background experiments, there's a lot of people who work on modelling all of the dust in the universe, and that's lifetime's worth of research that's going into modelling something that they will eventually just subtract from the signal. So, they can see a clearer cosmic microwave background signal.
0: Or at least that's your take on things. Yes. <laughs> I work with all of that stuff.
1: It's definitely useful.
0: Yeah, I've even, uh, with the Planck collaboration, I was even involved in a uh, collaborative paper on uh, one of those dusty foreground objects, the Andromeda Galaxy. And I'm actually kind of happy about that paper mm. and the way it came out, too.
2: Yeah, and I do find it quite amusing that uh, one person's uh, foreground mm. want to get rid of it as uh, as quickly as possible and don't care about it at all can be someone else's lifetime of uh, research.
1: Certainly, certainly. I think it's all important work, isn't it?
0: Because... Oh, yeah. Well, I guess yeah. I guess after having said that, yeah, I like to work with these mm. uh, dusty foreground type things. Yeah. Things in my research, which I frequently take out uh, in some of the uh, mid infrared data that I've worked with over the years, I frequently take out asteroids, for example. And there are people who are going to be really interested in asteroids. You also see uh, emission from the zodiacal light, which is uh, dust uh, that orbits the sun about the same distance as the Earth does. and So it's like a very thin dust cloud. This is also something which I typically subtract out of my mid-infrared data when I'm working with it.
1: I think whenever you're looking at something new, something you don't understand, even if it is something someone's going to subtract out, you're going to find some interesting science out of it. It's going to be worthwhile.
2: So going back to the prize that was awarded for this work, um how much did you say say that it was? Uh yeah.
1: it was it was 3 million dollars. That's the as the standard amount the breakthrough prize mm. gives. And
2: and does that get distributed to all of the the scientists uh, involved in in the work? Is it split evenly? Does it go to their personal finances or is it to fund more science?
1: So the prize was awarded to the WMAP collaboration and I think it's for them to decide how how they're going to um distribute the money and i don't think that's i don't think that's been determined yet but
2: okay yeah it definitely goes to show that the uh the age of one lone scientist working in a in a basement somewhere and uh, publishing amazing discoveries on their own are kind of long gone aren't they it's now science is now i guess the spirit of collaboration and uh everyone doing a little uh little piece of the puzzle i guess
0: So, the news item which I found for Odds and Ends was about a new instrument that the European Southern Observatory has recently commissioned. It's on the Very Large Telescope, which is a set of four telescopes with eight mirror diameters, which sits on one of the main mountaintops in Chile. And the instrument is called the Echelle spectrograph for Rocky Exoplanet and Stable Spectrographic Observations, which is actually a very uh, contrived acronym that spells ESPRESSO.
2: (laughs) I was going to ask, where where does the acronym fit into this? Because there's always an acronym.
0: (laughs) Yes, some people devote huge amounts of time to creating creative acronyms for their science projects. And you don't just have ordinary abbreviations uh, that often these days. You do have the Very Large Telescope, which gets abbreviated VLT, and that makes for a horrific uh, acronym, if you try to pronounce it, VOLT. But, yeah, I think the uh, instrument team for ESPRESSO worked very hard in their acronym. But besides working hard in their acronym... According to a press release, they apparently worked 10 years on producing this instrument. And this instrument's what's called a uh, cross-dispersion shell spectrograph, which is partly in the name. So if people are familiar with diffraction gratings, these are uh, gratings with very fine uh, divisions in them, where when you look through the diffraction grating, you actually get a rainbow, particularly when you point at a... uh, light source. like uh, Don't look directly at the sun, but if you look at a light bulb through a diffraction grating, you can see this. Uh, there are diffraction gratings inside Espresso as well. A lot of instruments will use just one diffraction grating, and that will give you one spectrum. But in the past couple of decades, there's been a the move to using cross-dispersion uh, shell spectrographs where you actually have two gratings, so the first grating actually and they're reflective gratings, typically the first grating will reflect onto a second grating and the second grating will uh, basically be oriented at a 90 degree angle. So you get a rainbow from the first grating, the second grating will actually take that spectrum and actually spread it out even more into a series of extra bands into a series of extra bands. And so you can get a very detailed spectrum uh, with very minute details by using uh, this type of spectral setup. The VLT had been using uh, similar types of spectrographs on their telescope for uh, things like, like planet hunting but also for lots of other activities. These spectrographs have lots of other utilities as well. When I was a student in the University of Hawaii, for example, uh, there was a cross dispersion cell spectrograph on the CAC telescope, which I think may still be operational, uh, which was uh, very commonly used to look at very distant quasars and actually look at the absorption of light from those very distant quasars by very redshifted very distinct blobs of hydrogen gas that crossed along the line of sight. So these spectrographs have more than just one purpose, but this one people are very focused on using it for planet hunting. And the precision that this spectrograph has in terms of frequency is quite phenomenal. So the spectrograph that's replacing a thing called HARPS, had the ability to detect motions in other stars that would be caused by gravitational interactions with planets that are around one meter per second so it could actually see that type of velocity shifting if you think about your everyday life you move around typically by about one meter per second I think a lot of people move around by about one meter per second. It's sort of like maybe a a little bit of a jogging pace, maybe, or a very brisk walk. The new instrument, ESPRESSO, will be able to detect motions around a few centimeters per second. So imagine being able to tell how precisely fast you're walking down the street. That's what this instrument's going to be able to do.
2: Mm, it's very impressive.
0: It sounds very spookily precise. The other interesting thing about this, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, the very large telescope is four 8-meter telescopes. Typically, with a lot of instruments working with the VLT, they've worked on one individual 8-meter telescope. Uh, now the plan had been for a very long time that they would actually connect the four telescopes, make them work together. But for a lot of everyday type of activities with the VLT, uh, particularly imaging, uh, where you didn't need really high resolution interferometric imaging, it made sense to work with the telescopes. Individually, rather than try to combine them together, which gets technically messy. The espresso instrument, however, has been designed to actually work with all four telescopes simultaneously, so it would actually have access to the collecting power of all four telescopes. So it will effectively work like a telescope that's twice as large in diameter, uh, which would be very impressive. Cool.
1: So you mentioned planet hunting. Now, as someone who's not familiar with that field, how, how do you decide where to
0: look? I think general move has been towards looking at nearby stars in general. Some people may want to choose stars which are very similar to the sun, so a very similar spectral type and very similar luminosity, so something which is sort of yellowish and sort of the same brightness of the sun still converting hydrogen to helium at its core. Having said that, there have been discoveries of planets around uh, fainter redder stars and pulsars and other weird situations. So uh, people could take a variety of other approaches to hunting for planets as well. Uh, such as, for example, just doing um, a blind survey if you want to. You could just say we're going to choose some patch of sky and we're going to monitor all of the stars within a certain distance in that patch of sky or maybe all of the stars within a certain distance with a certain brightness limit because st- some stars may get too faint to pick up with a spectrograph. But you can design samples that way for example. I've done this all the time with uh, various surveys of nearby galaxies as well. It's a very common kind of way you select things. It also gets down into, uh, are you interested in looking at very unique special objects or do you just want to choose as broad and unbiased range of objects as possible?
2: Well, speaking of exoplanet discoveries, that leads in um, quite nicely to my opinion that I've brought with me which, seeing as I thought it is uh, our January episode, the start of the year, I thought I'd look ahead um, to some of the upcoming space missions that are due to be launched this year. Now, take these with a pinch of salt, because uh, we all know, I think, how notorious these kind of missions are for being pushed back, and uh, their launch date just going back and back and back. In I... fact, some of some of these um, were previously... Ha- some of these should have already been launched um, and uh, have been pushed back to this year.
0: I was going to say, I can't remember when the James Webb Space Telescope was originally supposed to be launched, but I think it was supposed to be out in space
2: already. Oh yeah, so um, th- that uh, actually will get an honourable mention on my list for something that at some point was meant to be launched this year, but it's been pa- but it's been pushed back to 2019. Uh, so that doesn't even feature on my uh, list of things being launched this year. But never mind, hopefully when it's up it will be uh, good. Let's let's keep our fingers crossed for that. Um, But continuing on with the exoplanet theme, um, one of the satellites being launched this year, uh, hopefully in June, is TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Um, Now what this satellite is going to do is survey 200,000 of the brightest nearby stars to us uh, to look for transiting exoplanets, so that's um, exoplanets that pass in front of their host star, so that we're able to observe a dip in the brightness of that star. This is similar work to what has been done by the Kepler Space Telescope, which is famous for discovering a lot of exoplanets, Um, and TESS will be able to cover 400 times more area than Kepler did, and the stars that it is surveying will be 30 to 700 times brighter than Kepler, which means that it will be easier to follow up any discoveries with ground based telescopes. Um, so, yes, I know Josh in particular is very excited for, for the launch of that telescope.
0: Is he actually working with data from the telescope?
2: Oh, I don't know if he will be or not, but uh, he loves all things exoplanets and uh, works on exoplanetary atmospheres. So
1: I'd describe him as glee filled.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, when I mentioned that I would uh, be talking about this for my ad and end, his face just lit up and uh, got very excited about Tess. So, um, yes, I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot more about Tess from Josh later on in the year. A bit closer to home, looking at space missions that will be targeting bodies in our own solar system, uh, we've got a couple of missions going to the moon this year. So we've got the Chandrayaan-2 mission, um, which is from the Indian Space Research Organisation. It's the second of India's lunar exploration missions, um, so it'll have a lunar orbiter, lander and rover, and it's looking for things on the moon surface, um, such as mapping the major elements present there and probing down the first few tens of metres into the lunar surface um, for looking for different constituents, including water ice.
0: Is it actually drilling into the surface?
2: Um, No, it'll be using a synthetic aperture radar, Uh, so I assume it'll be using radar technology to to be doing that, although I couldn't tell you how that worked.
0: (laughs) Uh, I could uh, imagine how it works, but Mm. it'd be kind of interesting, I suppose they're looking for broader uh, variations Mm. in the uh, density which would indicate something like an ice layer underneath. Uh, rather than drilling and actually getting chemical measurements, Mm. which is why I first thought. Although that would be a cool mission.
2: Yeah, I know. um, Uh, Maybe
0: mission three, India.
2: Mm. Um, We've got another interesting one going to the moon. um, Again, hopefully going to be launched in around June time. Um, There's the Chang'e 4 mission uh, from China's space agency. Um, So this one will be interesting because they're planning on landing on the far side of the moon. So what they're also going to be launching as well as a lander and and rover is a communication relay satellite so that's what's going to be launched in in june this year it's going to be launched to the earth moon l2 point so lagrangian point uh, where the orbit is stable and uh, that will relay the signals between the lander and rover and, and, and Earth, um, so the lander and rover will, will follow six months later, so potentially towards the end of this year, very late 2018, I don't think that one's got a, a set launch date yet, um, but some of the science that that um, mission is wanting to have a look at is more um, geophysics as opposed to kind of chemical analysis, um, but it'll have things such as a panoramic camera, radar, uh, infrared spectrometer and things like that, so uh, hopefully we'll get some interesting stuff out the moon this year. Another solar system mission that we have is Insight, um, which should be launching in May, going to Mars. Uh, this is a NASA mission, and Insight stands for Interior Exploration using Seismic Investigations, Geodesy, and Heat Transport.
0: So it's they up. they worked on their acronym.
2: Yes. Yep. Uh, another one of these. Uh, another
1: one of these fun acronyms.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. The mission's primary objective is to uncover how a rocky body forms and how it evolves to become a planet. And the mission's secondary objective is to conduct an in depth study of tectonic activity and meteorite impacts on Mars. So some of the things that they'll be doing um, are determining the size, composition and physical state of the Martian core, uh, looking at the thickness and structure of the Martian crust, um, and also the composition and structure of the mantle, um, determining the thermal state of the interior, and also, like I said, men- measuring the rate of meteorite impact on the surface of Mars.
0: It's actually kind of incredible to think, with all the missions to Mars and all of the attention that Mars has gotten. that uh, There hasn't been this fundamental work yet on uh, just simple seismology to uh, determine these things which we've known about for the Earth for quite a long time. It's like we've known that there's been like a uh, molten inner core and a solid inner core and uh, we've known about the mantle. We even know about substructure within the mantle and the crust. from seismology stuff but I guess I just would have assumed that they would have already done seismology stuff on Mars Mm, already
2: much much of the focus actually on on Mars from previous missions there has been very superficial surface stuff that is the appeal of Mars it is you know very similar to Earth in many respects, it is smaller, but it is you know a rocky surface um, of the kind of four rocky planets um, in the solar system. I mean Mercury is just a very small, very hot rock. Venus is um, about the same size as us, but is even hotter and is probably a very nasty would, place to be.
0: I would actually argue that Venus is more like Earth and that Venus has ongoing volcanic activity. Well, excuse me, Venus has ongoing tectonic activity, uh, and it has an atmosphere, and it's similar to the Earth in size, but Mm. uh, the main limitation in studying Venus is just the fact that the atmosphere is so very thick and very hot, and so the combination of very high pressures and extreme heat at the surface make it technically difficult to stick Mm. anything on Venus,
2: well, well, let's hope that the Earth doesn't become any more like Venus with its runaway greenhouse effect. <laughs>
0: well, the other scary thing would be if uh, the greenhouse effects caused the Earth's atmosphere to expand, which is mm-hmm. kind of similar to what happens with, like, what love red supergiants when they die. Uh, you'd lose the atmosphere. Mm.
2: Let's hope that doesn't happen.
0: <laughs> That's a cheery
1: thought.
2: Um, speaking of the other planets, um, we have also in October um a mission called Beppi Colombo which i absolutely love the name of it's named after um, an actual person um Giuseppe Beppi uh, was his nickname Colombo who was the first person to um implement the interplanetary gravity assist maneuver um during the 1974 Mariner 10 mission now this kind of uh, maneuver has become key to sending out a lot of our things into space um so it's it's good that he, I think he he's been uh, Noted uh, for that naming, this this mission. And again, great name, Beppy Colombo. I love saying it. Um, so this is a joint mission of the European Space Agency and the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. And it's like I said, it's going to the planet Mercury. Uh, It'll comprise of two satellites: the Mercury Planetary Orbiter and the Mercury Magnetospheric Orbiter. Uh, its main science goals include studying the origin and evolution of planets close to their parent star so obviously mercury is the, the innermost planet in in our solar system um and study it just as a as a planet as a whole its form its interior structure geology composition um craters and also to investigate the origin of, of mercury's magnetic field
0: did you say are they going to be landing a uh, seismometer like uh, the mars mission
2: uh, no, so the, it's it's just comprised of two satellites, it's going to be.
0: So they're going to use combination of gravity and uh, magnetic measurements to uh, basically figure out the... Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, and also they, they say they're going to verify Einstein's theory of general relativity um, with high accuracy.
0: Yeah, I can see that easily.
2: Yeah. yeah. It, was, um, it
0: was originally in the... Uh, early 20th century, uh, the transit of Mercury across the Sun, which Mm. uh, was original proof of uh, uh, general relativity.
2: Mm. Uh, Speaking of the Sun, we've also got a couple of missions coming up this year that are dedicated to study our local star. Um, We've got the European Space Agency's Solar Orbiter that's due to launch in October, and the spacecraft will combine in situ and remote sensing observations to gain new information about things such as the solar wind, the heliospheric magnetic field, uh, solar energetic particles, and the sun's magnetic field. We've also got a NASA mission, the Parker Solar Probe, uh, which will get within 8.5 solar radii of the photosphere, so getting right up close to the sun. Um, and this was originally scheduled for t- 2015, uh, but it's been pushed back uh, to this year, so hopefully that will launch in the sub- summer and won't be subject to any more delays. Again, all of these things, we can only hope that things still uh, stay on time. I can't actually think of any mission that has launched on time and uh, and has been noted for its punctuality in launching. I, th- I feel like if one did happen, it would be made a big thing of.
1: It would almost become... The poster shard for it, launching in it mm. on time.
2: Well, let's hope that uh, most of these missions will uh, stick to schedule, and we'll get some interesting science out from them this year. I'll also mention we've obviously got, uh, as well as all of these uh, launching this year, we'll also have the usual Soyuz flights up to the space station, other other rocket launches, um, communication satellites being being added. These uh, launches are kind of almost routine now, happening all the time. And I'll also uh, make a note of um, SpaceX, who. Uh, Elon Musk has said that they're going to launch a Tesla Roadster on their um, on one of their Falcon rockets this year, um, which I'll be interested to see that if and when that happens. Um, obviously, no scientific merit there, just uh, they want to launch a car into space.
0: That's like something for a commercial shoot more than anything else. <laughs>
2: Um, So yeah, so that's, uh, I think I'm just about done then with my uh, odd and end. Obviously, if I've I've missed anything out then.
1: And now, looking from the far future to looking at the near future, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky.
6: The night sky for January 2018. Well, of course, this month we have a wonderful southern sky. Centre stage is Orion the Hunter, The three stars of its belt point leftwards down to Sirius in Canis Major. And up to the right, you come to Taurus with the two lovely open clusters, the Hyades and the Pleiades. I should point out that Aldebaran, which is a red giant star that appears to be in the Hyades cluster, is in fact about halfway between us and the cluster. Above Sirius and over to the left of Orion is a single bright star, Procyon. In Canis Minor and above that we have the twins Castor and Pollux the heavenly twins a rather nice constellation and it has at least a sort of shape of what it might should look like higher above still there's a bright yellow star it'll be almost overhead actually and that's Capella Alpha Aurigae, and it has a lot, sort of a open pentangle of um, stars amongst which there's some very nice open clusters seen as little fuzzy blobs with binoculars, but as little star clusters with a small telescope. Finally, rising in the east is Leo the lion. Again, a constellation that looks a bit like what it ought to, the the lions in Trafalgar Square, for example. So it's a very nice time to observe the heavens. I hope you get some nights which, though clear, are not quite as cold as they have been whilst I've been preparing this talk. Well, what about the planets? Jupiter is now a pre-dawn object, rising some three and a half hours before the sun at the beginning of the month, with its 33 arc 2nd disk shining at magnitude minus 1.8 to be seen under clear skies. As the month progresses, its apparent diameter increases to 35.8 arc seconds and its brightens to magnitude minus 2 nicely now the elevation before dawn will be sufficiently high to enable crisp views of the giant planet to be seen with the equatorial bands sometimes the great but reducing in size red spot and up to four of the galilean moons as they weave their way around it saturn well saturn passed behind the sun on december the 21st that's called superior conjunction and reappears in the pre-dawn sky this month at the start of its new apparition. It is unlikely to be seen in the first week of January, but climbs higher and so becomes easier to spot as the month progresses, as its brightness increases to plus 0.6 magnitudes. The rings were at their widest a few months ago and are still well open. Well Mercury reaches greatest elongation west, on New Year's Day, shining at magnitude minus 0.3. It'll be seen low in the southeast before dawn and will be visible for a couple of weeks before sinking back towards the sun. Its angular diameter reduces from 6.7 to 4.9 arc seconds, but as the percentage illuminated of the surface increases from 62 to 95%, its brightness remains constant throughout the month. Mars. At the start of the month, Mars lies in Libra, but moves down into Scorpius at the end of the month. A morning object, at the start of its new apparition, it rises four hours earlier or so than the Sun. During the month, Mars has a magnitude increasing from 1.5 to 1.2 magnitudes, and an angular size of just 4.8 increasing to 5.6 arc seconds. So no details will be seen on its salmon pink surface, unless you have access perhaps to the Hubble telescope. Moving eastwards, Mars has a very close conjunction with Jupiter on the 6th of January, as we shall see. Now Venus passes through superior conjunction again on the far side of the Sun on January the 9th, and so cannot be observed this month. What about some highlights well perhaps we have a, a last month where we might be able to observe andromeda and perhaps m33 two lovely galaxies nearby they're setting down towards the west now but should still be visible after dark on the night sky page put in night sky jodrell we'll find it in in google or something then it tells you a chart and also instructions of how to find it well on january 5th Before dawn, a waning moon passes very close to Regulus in Leo. On January the 6th, as I mentioned before dawn, Mars and Jupiter get pretty close. So if it's clear and looking to the south-southeast, Mars at magnitude 1.4 will be seen just to the right of Jupiter, much brighter, shining at magnitude minus 1.8. At their closest, they will be just 23 arc seconds apart. That would make a very nice image, in fact, showing Mars, Jupiter, and hopefully the moons as well. That's something I should try and do. Before dawn on January the 13th, there's a chance, given a very low southeastern horizon and a clear sky, of spotting Saturn together with Mercury. A thin crescent moon will be seen up to their right. So that's a nice skyscape, isn't it? I suspect you'll need binoculars to pick them out against the glare of the pre-dawn sky, because when you use binoculars, the magnitude reduces the brightness of the glare, but more or less allows the brightness of the two planets to remain the same. But obviously, do not use binoculars once the sun has risen. On December the 26th, late evening, the moon is quite close and below the Hyades and the Pleiades, again, making a nice sort of visual view of the heavens. And on January the 26th, the phase of the moon is such that the two greatest craters on the moon, Tycho and Copernicus, are well visible. And again, on the night sky page, there are some details about them. Perhaps I could just finish with a little advert. I've spent a year writing what I call an Astronomy Digest And if you put Astronomy Digest Morrison with one R into Google, it should be found. And I've so far put up about uh, 36 articles on it, uh, which cover all aspects of amateur astronomy, both visual observing and also um, imaging. And I hope some of those articles might be of some interest. So just Astronomy Digest will probably find it. But if you put Astronomy Digest Morrison, it certainly will. Well, I hope you have a good month's observing. Happy New Year.
1: Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Antipodean listeners, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are.
7: Namihi Ototoho toho kia katoa. Happy New Year and welcome to the first Southern Skies Jodcast of 2018 from Space Place at Carter Observatory here in Wellington, New Zealand. We're well into our summer months now. We've moved past the longest day and our days are slowly beginning to get shorter again. On the evening of January the 3rd, the Earth reaches perihelion, the closest point in its orbit around the Sun. In theory, this means that the Sun appears at its largest in the sky and we receive more radiation from it than at any other time of the year. In practice, however, this effect is tiny. The Earth's orbit is very close to being circular, so the distance between the Earth and Sun varies by only 3% over the course of the year. The changing tilt of the Earth's axis has a much more significant effect and is the true cause of the changing weather patterns and seasons we experience here on Earth. This month, we will continue our tour of some of the clusters and nebulae along the Milky Way, which stretches across the eastern sky after dark, becoming brightest in the south towards the southern cross, Tepunga. Orion still dominates our eastern skies after dark, Following his belt to the right, you come to Sirius or Takarua, the brightest star in our nighttime sky and in the constellation of Canis Major, Orion's large hunting dog. Whilst it appears as a single star to the naked eye, Sirius is in fact a binary system consisting of a white main sequence star of around two solar masses and a small dense white dwarf companion. Just above and to the right of Sirius at a distance of around 4 degrees is M41 or NGC 2287. M41 is an open cluster of stars covering an area around the size of the full moon. It is just about visible as a blurry smudge to the naked eye from a clear dark location. Through binoculars or a small telescope you'll start to resolve a number of individual stars showing hints of red and orange including a prominent 6.3 magnitude K3 giant close to the cluster's centre. A little further towards the south and set apart from the Milky Way is a bright star Canopus the second brightest star in our night time sky at magnitude minus 0.74. Tamari, this is known either as Ariki meaning highborn or Atutahi meaning standalone, and is considered to be a tapu or sacred star, never setting here in New Zealand. Canopus is the brightest star in the constellation of Carina, the keel, which, along with Vela, the sails, and Puppis, the poop deck, once formed part of the southern constellation of Argo Navis. Straddling the Milky Way, this represented the great ship used by Jason and the Argonauts in their search for the Golden Fleece. The constellation was split into the three components used today by French astronomer Nicolas Louis de Lacaille in 1763. There are many interesting nebulae and star clusters to look at in this part of the sky, but perhaps the most famous is NGC 3372, the Eta Carina Nebula. NGC 3372 is a huge cloud of glowing gas estimated to be around 7,500 light-years away. It is one of the largest nebulae of its type in our skies, four times the size of the Orion Nebula, and the brightest central parts can be picked out with the naked eye as a brilliant patch of the Milky Way a little above and to the right of the Southern Cross in our evening skies. With binoculars, you should be able to see a golden star in the nebula. This is Eta itself, a massive, unstable star that's on the verge of blowing itself apart. In fact, Itacarina is a system of at least two stars, the largest with a mass of around 90 suns. The combined luminosity of this system is around 5 million times that of our own sun. This massive star is so bright that the radiation pressure it produces is almost too strong for the gravity holding it together causing a constant stream of material out into space. Eta Carina has varied hugely in brightness since it was first catalogued by Edmund Halley in 1677. It was only fourth magnitude at the time and appeared as a fairly ordinary star, but by the mid-18th century it had brightened to second magnitude before dimming back to its previous brightness. It began to brighten again in the 1820s, reaching a peak magnitude of minus 0.8 in 1843 and becoming the second brightest star in the nighttime sky for over two decades. Astronomers now believe that this extreme brightening was linked to a huge outburst, with the star blasting off around 10% of its mass in two huge clouds of gas and dust, which now form the peanut-shaped homunculus nebula visible in a small telescope. Eta Carina is now back to around 4th magnitude, but it's brightening again. It is expected to end its life in a huge supernova within the next few thousand years. Also within the nebula are a number of interesting open star clusters. Eta Carina is part of the massive open cluster Trompler-16. At magnitude 5, the cluster is just about visible to the naked eye, but even the smallest binoculars will reveal some of the individual stars within it. Trumpler-16 contains a large number of very young stars, some formed within the last few million years. Along with Eta Carina, it also contains WR25 and Trumpler-16-244, three of the brightest and most massive stars in our galaxy. The other main cluster within the nebula is Trumpler-14, which, whilst not as large and bright as Trumpler-16, still contains around 2,000 stars. Trumpler-14 is one of the youngest star clusters known, and is still going through a period of massive star formation. Some estimates put the age of this cluster at only 300 to 500,000 years. Around 4 degrees south of the Eta Carina Nebula, and at the lowest point of the Diamond Cross, is the Theta Carina Cluster, or IC2602, containing around 60 individual stars. The cluster is also known as the Southern Pleiades, but with a magnitude of 1.9, it is much fainter than its northern counterpart. The cluster spans around 50 arc minutes, over one and a half full moon diameters, so it is best viewed with binoculars or a low-powered telescope, giving a wide field of view. Also worth looking out for in Carina is NGC 2516, known as the Southern Beehive, located just above the False Cross, and NGC 3532, the Football Cluster or Wishing Well Cluster. Both are visible to the naked eye, but a good pair of binoculars will reveal a stunning view. NGC 3532 in particular is a great target, a favourite of English astronomer John Herschel, and the very first object to be observed by the Hubble Space Telescope in May 1990. You'll find it roughly halfway between Crux and the False Cross, close to Eta Carina. We have no bright planets in our evening skies this month, Mars rises just before 2.30am at the beginning of the month, with bright golden Jupiter joining it a few minutes later. Jupiter will rise gradually earlier each day, tracking with the background stars, whilst Mars moves more slowly. The two will be only 12 arc minutes apart on the 7th of the month, as Jupiter overtakes Mars in the morning sky. On the night of the 11th, they will be joined by a beautiful waning crescent moon. By month's end, Jupiter will be rising before 1am and Mars will sit below and to the right, rising around half an hour later. Mercury sits low in the morning twilight throughout most of January and is soon joined by Saturn, with the two sitting right next to each other on the morning of the 13th. Saturn continues to rise higher whilst Mercury, on its inner orbit, sinks back into the twilight. Wishing you clear skies and a very happy 2018 from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory.
1: Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback.
0: Well, unfortunately we don't have any feedback for this episode, but maybe that's just as well. It's uh aside from the fact we don't have any feedback in this episode, I just really haven't received that many emails that much in the past month except for Christmas emails from family and friends Uh, I don't know about anybody else Um, I mean it's like all of my work stuff kind of slowed down because everybody uh, that I work with uh, internationally just went on vacation
2: Yeah I didn't really get any work emails but uh, I had lots and lots of various places that I've given my email to at some point trying to get me to buy lots and lots of things Um, so they all got deleted but they clogged up my inbox
3: I must
1: confess I didn't really check my emails over the Christmas break at all. Well,
0: that's maybe part of the reason why we didn't get any feedback whatsoever.
2: I I just took a break over Christmas. I didn't do any work at all. Um.
0: <laughs> the luxury of being a PhD student. Yep, yep. Anyway, if you would like to get in touch with us, uh, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net
2: Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast
1: Facebook at facebook.com forward slash
0: jodcast youtube at youtube.com slash jodcast
2: flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast
0: and don't
1: forget that you can send us post the address is on the website
0: thanks to dr allison kirkpatrick for the interview the editors were naomi assombre Frimprong, george bendel niall McCollum, and tom scrag the producer was josh hayes until next time
2: John. on! on.